You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. June 3rd, 2020. The World Economic Forum publishes a video titled The Great Reset. And that very same day, the royal family publishes a video supporting this so-called major global initiative. We have no alternative because otherwise we will end up having more and more pandemics. Now, over the coming weeks, multiple videos on the reset were published by the World Economic Forum. And they were starting to get more and more sketchy. His Excellency Xi Jinping, President of the People's Republic of China. Major economies should see the world as one community and coordinate the objectives, intensity, and pace of fiscal and monetary policy. And naturally, people started noticing that there was something rather nefarious behind this whole Great Reset initiative. And that begs the question, what are the real intentions behind the reset? Is it simply a failed marketing attempt at an actual genuine initiative? Or is it an attempt to concentrate the power in the hands of a few elitists and establish a new world order, as some are saying? And if so, who is behind this? And why the heck do we even need a reset in the first place? So today, we are investigating the Great Reset. And more importantly, we're doing something that no one else dares to do. We are exposing how the world actually works behind the scenes. And some of you guys may think you know the story, but it goes so much deeper. I have uncovered secret plots to topple the financial system, the real motives behind some of history's biggest crises, and instances of government officials secretly funding their own war enemies while their troops were in the battlefield, and even a secret organization that controls 95% of the world's GDP. So this is the first episode in a three-part series that has been half a year in the making. And you know, every time I thought I had come to an answer to my questions, a brand new problem would arise, leading to a never-ending rabbit hole that would eventually reveal who runs the world. It reveals the faces of those that hide in the shadows and use their puppets to control everything around us. And I call them the puppet masters. And the reason it took me so long to release this is because I wanted to figure out exactly how you can save yourself from their tyranny. And actually, let me just show you how I started this whole process in the first place. There is still one way out. So let's analyze the situation. The puppet masters are about to have you right where they want you, under their thumb. You see, once CBDCs are rolled out, you will be at their mercy. They decide how much you spend, where you spend it, and even how much money you have left at the end of the month. And that will make it impossible for you to escape. You will be on a perpetual hamster wheel for the rest of your life. Living paycheck to paycheck because no matter how much you save, their negative interest rates will chew away at your savings because they don't even view it as your money to begin with in the first place. Forget your property rights, forget your future, forget your liberty. You will be nothing but a slave to the system. And that's just the money. They said to themselves, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. You will eat the bugs because they control the food supply. And if you dare speak up, well then they'll be very upset and your social credit score will go down. Good luck getting a new rental agreement. And if you try to run away, good luck. Because the next step in controlling energy supply is banning gas powered cars. Because once everyone has electric cars, with a flick of a switch, they deem whether you are worthy or not of travel. The clock is seconds away from midnight. DEFCON 1. 
But that's what happens when power is concentrated in a select few hands. Because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is why you need to escape now. And that means you need to claw back the freedom you deserve. And the way to claw back that freedom is by three avenues. The first one is financial freedom. And this is obvious because once they have complete control over the financial system, they will make it impossible for you to be financially free because they want you to be dependent on them. They need you to be dependent on them because when you're dependent on them, you are controllable. So that means you need to put every waking moment into earning your financial freedom. The next is time freedom. And this is truly how you get off the hamster wheel. You need to stop trading your time for money, because if you do, inflation and negative interest rates will eat away at your savings and you'll be stuck in the debt cycle forever. And the next is location freedom. And this is the one that usually people sacrifice the other two for. You may have financial freedom and you may even have a bit of time freedom, but you are stuck in a city and that makes you controllable. That makes you a slave because when the US or Europe goes to you can't pack up, you can't leave. You don't have autonomy because make no mistakes about it. It's about to be war. And if it is war, you need to be able to be mobile. And that brings me to my next point, which is in a world of centralization, you need to decentralize as much as possible. And what does that mean? You may ask. Well, just like when you're investing, you don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You don't just pick one stock in the same way. You can't just bet on one country because if your country goes to shit, what are you going to do? So you need to plan. And this is where multiple passports and multiple residencies come into the picture. And once you're financially free, this becomes a lot easier. In places like St. Kitts, you can earn citizenship through investment for as low as 150K. And you need to start tracing your lineage so that way you can see if you are eligible for any other citizenships. Look into things like digital nomad visas. Start looking in different countries. And this also applies for bank accounts. You need more bank accounts. You need them in more countries because if one country starts to restrict withdrawals, well, then you're stuck. If one country starts tracking your carbon footprint, and charges you for it, which by the way is already happening. I wrote about this a few weeks ago, but MasterCard has already implemented technology that is required to know your exact carbon footprint depending on your spending. And the next step, well, if you spend in non-climate friendly places, well, you'll be penalized. And what's worse is they're giving the technology to every major payment processor. And that's why you need more bank accounts. You need bank accounts in different countries. And it amazes me that more people don't do this. In the same way you treat your investments, you need to treat your cash. And realize that the only way you can complete these steps is if you have these three types of freedom that I've already told you about. And you have maybe two, three years before it's too late. But what I will say, is that it feels like more people are starting to wake up. So if you want to reclaim the freedom that you were born deserving, you must act now. So instead of submitting to their globalist dystopia of the Great Reset, instead, together, let's make this the Great Escape. How do you think that went? Yeah, I think it went really well. Uh, I think the people are going to like it. I kind of feel like we're just I feel like we're just a broken record at this point. Like I kind of feel like we're just beating the same dead old horse. Mm. I mean, it's it's the truth. So there's, there's not really much more you can do. I don't know. I 
feel like something just isn't right. But before I tell you the solution, let me tell you what got me to that point. Now, in order for you to truly comprehend what's going on, we need to set a timeline of events and understand who are the characters that play a role in this plot. But before we go there, we need to understand how we actually got here. So let's start from the beginning. June 3rd, 2020. That was the date that the name The Great Reset was first introduced. And really the idea was the following. Quoting the words from the Great Reset page from the World Economic Forum's website, our world has changed. We have greater challenges than ever before and because of that, our systems need a reset. The C-19 crisis brings us a unique window of opportunity to reshape our world. There is an urgent need for global stakeholders to cooperate in simultaneously managing the direct consequences of this crisis. Now, all of these claims are pretty debatable. The world has changed. Has it really? Are today's challenges really greater than the ones we have been facing over the last hundreds of years? And even if they were, why does that mean that our world needs a reset? What does a world reset even mean in the first place? Now, before we dive into each one of these questions, let's go back to the timeline of events because it's essential for you to understand the past before you can ever judge the future. And although the Great Reset launched on June 3rd, 2020, the seeds for it had been planted a long, long time ago. So let's go back to November 12th, 2016. The World Economic Forum publishes an article titled Eight Predictions for the World in 2030. And the very first prediction they made, number one, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Whatever you want, you'll rent. Now they've been seeding the whole you'll own nothing and be happy narrative for almost a decade now. Now, who exactly has been pushing that? Who are the puppet masters behind this whole narrative? It's an international organization called the World Economic Forum. Now, the World Economic Forum is basically an intergovernmental organization that connects the world's most powerful countries with government leaders from all major countries. Now, their objective? Tackle the world's most crucial challenges, which according to them are climate change, carbon emissions, gender pay gap, amongst a myriad of other things. And here are some of their members, CEOs such as Zuck and Bill Gates. You know, the classic ones everyone knows and dislikes. Other members such as Biden, China's dictator, Putin, Trump, royal family. It's basically a mastermind full of billionaires and the world's most powerful people, both from the private and public sector, who all take their jet or even fleet of private jets into Davos, which is obviously quite ironic considering that they're trying to tackle global warming and all that. But nonetheless, let's ignore that. So they jet into Davos every year to plan how to reshape the world in a more sustainable way, using their own words. They label themselves as independent, impartial, and not tied to any special interest. Now, I don't know about you, but that last part sounds ultra suspicious to me. I wonder why. Now, the more I researched, the more the World Economic Forum looked like the exact opposite of that. I mean, a lobbyist organization that only has their personal interest and the one of its members in mind, all while trying to make it look like they have other people's interests in mind by exploiting the hot topic issues of today's world. Now, the first reason that led me to this conclusion came from questioning their very own narrative. You'll own nothing and be happy. Now, there's a few things we can infer from this claim. First one is someone has to own things. I mean, if you don't own anything and I don't own anything, then who does? It probably means that someone will have to own everything. So it seems like their great plan is just to own everything. And secondly, you're still going to need to have a house, a car, a phone, a computer, a stove, a fridge. And if you don't own those, well, then you're going to have to rent them. And everyone else will have to rent from the same individuals who owns 
everything. So if the only way for you and I to access things is by renting them from the ones that own everything, doesn't that also mean that they'll have complete control over you, me, and everyone else because they can practically choose who they rent it to and under what conditions they rent it since we really don't have any other options but to rent from them. And listen, I don't know about you, but for me personally, that doesn't sound too good. And once again, following in their line of thinking, if you own nothing and are happy, does that mean that the people who own everything will be sad? You know, are they doing this as an altruistic effort to spare us all the pain of owning anything so that way we can enjoy the peace of mind of owning nothing? Well, that doesn't seem too logical to me either. So maybe you'll own nothing and be happy so that in turn, they will own everything and be happier? Sounds like a great win-win situation, doesn't it? To me, it sounds like you will own nothing. It's just another way of saying, we will own you. And the more I researched this, the more questions I had. Who's behind the World Economic Forum? What's their actual agenda with this whole Great Reset plan? How do they plan on implementing it in practice? Like, how are we gonna go from owning houses, cars, and other consumer goods to just simply owning nothing? I mean, is the government gonna come knocking on our doors with guns and saying, hey, all of your assets are now mine. So in order to get some answers, let's go back to our investigation board and let's point our efforts to Klaus Schwab. So we've got the first character that plays a role in this plot, the World Economic Forum. So next obvious question to ask is, who runs the World Economic Forum? Because let's think about this. If the World Economic Forum is an organization that proposes and helps governments execute an agenda, to literally reshape the future of our world. And they do that by putting themselves in a position of being an internal organization for public-private cooperation. Well, surely the person in charge of all that must have been democratically elected, right? I mean, it's just common sense. If you're the one dealing with the public, environmental, and trade policies of the entire world, you have to be elected by the people. Or at the very least, by an executive board that was democratically elected by elected officials from each country. So that way we know that you are acting on behalf of the interests from the people who elected you. I mean, that has to be the case, right? As it were, it's not. You see, the World Economic Forum is not like the United Nations, the IMF, or even the World Bank, which are the biggest institutions in the world, and all of which have democratic systems to elect their heads. The WEF, though? Well, they're a completely private institution. There's no democratic election to decide who's in charge. And even more interesting than that, all of the institutions that I just mentioned, the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, well, they support and execute an agenda that was set by the World Economic Forum. Listen, the bottom line is, the person who's dictating the economic and environmental agenda for the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, and for the most important nations and private corporations around the world was elected by nobody other than himself. Yes, that's correct. The person who is telling you that you are willing to own nothing and be happy was never even publicly elected. So, who is this powerful and mysterious figure? Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Klaus Schwab. He's the World Economic Forum's founder and the current president and spokesperson for the organization the only leader the forum has ever had. And to understand how Klaus Schwab came to be, we need to go back to 1938. That was the year Schwab was born, in no other place than Nazi Germany. And at the time, his father was a managing director for a subsidiary of a Zurich-based engineering firm called Escher Wies. Now here's a fun little fact for you. That very same firm was found to exploit prisoners of war and use other forms of forced labor. 
Now, this actually sparked rumors that Schwab's father was a high-ranking Nazi official, but fear not, because the fact-checkers were quick to dispel those far-fetched myths. So we definitely don't need to worry about that. You see, Klaus Schwab was well-educated, earning multiple degrees in Switzerland and Germany, as well as a Master's of Public Administration from Harvard University. Now, going back to our timeline, fast forward to 1971. Schwab founded the World Economic Forum to fulfill his dream from moving from a shareholder capitalism model to a stakeholder capitalism model. That we act all as stakeholders. The future is built by us. Don't you just love it when a man with a German access tells us how he's going to reshape our world? Now, what does stakeholder capitalism mean, you may ask? It's essentially moving away from profit-driven leadership to a model where companies answer first to special interests instead. This would mean that the people would have a say on the direction companies move to. You see, the problem with that is regular companies answer to their shareholders who hold the company accountable to achieving certain financial goals. Now, when you move away from answering to shareholders and decide to answer to the people instead, you answer to virtually everyone. And answering to everyone is the exact same as answering to no one, which is a perfect position to be in. Why? because you get to claim you're acting on everyone's interests without having to answer to anybody in practice. You become the king appointed by no one. So what Schwab is really saying when he's advocating for stakeholder capitalism is that he wants corporations to answer to special interests. The special interests of him and his friends at the WEF. He advocates for countries to stop using metrics like GDP and instead use metrics like climate action, sustainability, inclusivity, global cooperation, health and well-being. The problem with that speech is that none of those are real metrics because they can't be measured objectively with numbers. And this is exactly what he wants because then he can make himself unaccountable while pursuing a broader agenda. Now, at this point in my investigation, I thought I had a pretty clear idea of where things were going until I started to read Klaus Schwab's book, C19, The Great Reset. You see, what I found inside this book completely changed the direction of my entire investigation. And here's what I found. Throughout the entire book, Schwab kept repeating that this crisis was an opportunity. And I kept reading the word crisis over and over. And I quote, one of the lessons of the past five centuries in Europe and America is this, acute crises contribute to boosting the power of the state. It's always been the case and there's no reason why it should be different with the C-19 pandemic. It was as if he was trying to make a point about how beneficial crises were to society. I mean, doesn't that sound completely backwards? Now, at first, I tried to ignore it, but the same thing just kept popping up over and over. And I thought to myself, there has to be some untold reason behind Schwab's obsession with crises. So I decided to add that to my investigation board and jump down a completely different rabbit hole because I started to investigate the biggest crises from modern times that preceded the creation of the World Economic Forum. The Panic of 1907, World War I, World War II, and more. And after literally months of research, I managed to piece everything together that at first glance looked completely unrelated. And that's when I noticed that there was a much bigger story to this whole Great Reset narrative that was simply not being told. And it involved players like the Federal Reserve, JP Morgan, and even the island nation of Bahamas. I started to notice that the reset was much bigger than petty politics or ideologies. It's all about left-wing versus right-wing, not even close. The root of the problem is much deeper than that. 
And in order for you to understand it, we need to take another trip back in time and work our way through the timeline up until 1971, the year the World Economic Forum was founded. 1914, World War I. Now we often ask ourselves how it would even be possible to commit the heinous acts that mark the 20th century. And I think after I tell you the real story behind the US's entrance into World War I, things will begin to clear up. You see, you believe what you've been told in history class. You might even think that the US entered World War I for the greater good. I mean, after all, it was the influx of US troops coming at the brink of time that played a major role in the Allies' victory. So surely the US was motivated by pure intentions, you know, a desire to restore peace in the world and fight evil. Well, the more I researched, the more I questioned that hypothesis. And I'm sure there were good actors who did want that, but. The truth is, they were hardly the ones pulling the strings. You see, prior to the war, there was no appetite amongst the American public to join the war. So why did they? The war was far away. It didn't threaten American security. And quite frankly, it was none of America's business. At least that's what the vast majority of Americans thought. And the large German population in the US were drawn towards neutrality. And the rest of the population could be characterized as disinterested in the war. And I guess that's only natural. I mean, who would want war? Worse still, what kind of man would seek war, seek the death of millions? And this question started to become more and more pertinent after I found out that the US's entrance into the Great War didn't exactly happen as we may have been taught. I mean, I'm sure you weren't told in history class, but the US's entrance into the war was actually orchestrated at the highest levels of government and beyond. And one man in particular was instrumental to this process. Edward Mandel House. You see, House was the closest advisor to the ruling American president at the time, Woodrow Wilson. House had been pivotal to Wilson's presidential campaign success and now exerted a great influence over Wilson as his closest confidant. I mean, one specific fact about House made my alarm bell go off. He worked closely with Wilson in drafting 14 points which later led to the League of Legends. Now, if you don't know what that is, the League of Legends was the predecessor to the United Nations and one of the ruling institutions in the world that pushes the WEF's agenda to this day. Now, this already gives you an idea of both Wilson and House's globalist agenda, even in the early 1900s. But that is just the very tip of the iceberg. You see, in a conversation with the Foreign Secretary of England, House was posed a question. What will America do if the Germans sink an ocean liner with American passengers on board? Now, House's reply was clear and straightforward. He goes on to say this would be sufficient to carry us into war. Now you might be asking, why is this important? Well, that's because later in 1915, a passenger ship named Lusitania sailed from New York, bound for Liverpool in England. And can you guess what happened to that ship? The Germans torpedoed it, killing almost 2000 civilians, giving the American government the perfect pretext to enter the war with the public on their side. And of course, the public was outraged at this unprovoked attack, which came completely without warning. Those were the phrases repeated by news broadcasters and politicians around the country. But was it really without warning? I mean, with just a little bit of research, I was able to find out that this setup could not have been more obvious and more calculated. I mean, the Germans literally took out an ad in the New York Times warning people the risks of boarding the ship, explicitly writing that the ship would be liable to destruction. I mean, they were basically saying, look, 
If you send a ship into war-torn waters, we will have no choice but to attack it. So that begs the question, why would the American government do it anyways, knowing that they would be attacked and that 2,000 innocent lives would be at risk? To be completely honest, I wasn't too sure either. Was it malice? I mean, surely not. And at this point, unfortunately, it looked like I had encountered a dead end in my investigation. I simply didn't have anywhere else to go from here. But there were still unanswered questions that I had to find answers to. I mean, I knew that the American government orchestrated their way into war. But why? Why would they do that? And I knew that later on, House and Woodrow went on to create the foundations for the UN, an organization that's completely aligned with the WEF's interests, but I still hadn't found a direct connection between the two. And why did Klaus have such a fixation on crisis in his book? You know, I sat with those questions for weeks with honestly embarrassingly little progress. But it was only after weeks of going nowhere with my research that I was able to find something that would help me piece things together. It turns out that the answers to my questions were buried in an old and obscure book written by General Smedley Butler titled, War is Racket. You see, Butler was one of the most decorated American generals, two-time Medal of Honor recipient, who actually fought in World War I. And these are his words on the topic. Woodrow Wilson was re-elected president in 1916 on a platform that he had kept us out of the war. Yet five months later, he asked Congress to declare war on Germany. The four million young men who put on uniforms and marched or sailed away were not asked whether they wanted to go forth to suffer and die. Then what caused our government to change its mind so suddenly? Money. An allied commission came over shortly before the war declaration and called on the president. You see, the president summoned a group of advisors and the head of the commission spoke. Stripped of its diplomatic language, this is what he told the president and his group. There's no use kidding ourselves any longer. The cause of the allies is lost. We now owe you, the American bankers, the American munition makers, manufacturers, speculators, exporters, five or six billion dollars. And if we lose, and without the help of the US, we must lose, we, England, France, and Italy cannot pay back this money. And Germany won't. And that, my friends, is an excerpt from Major General Smedley Butler's War is Racket, 1935. It has been estimated by statisticians, economists, and researchers that the war yielded $16 billion in profits. That is how the 21,000 billionaires and millionaires got that way. Okay, so that answers one of our questions, which is why would Americans force their way into war? Money. Now, it's not like that money went straight to the American government. You see, as we've seen already, there are shadow figures who control the government's agenda to align with their own interests. So that led me to the next obvious question, who really got rich off the war? And how was Woodrow Wilson truly involved? Well, this leads us directly to our second major crisis and another journey back in time. Crisis two, the panic of 1907. Now to get to this, I had to dig deeper. I mean, deeper than I've ever dug before. You see, I started to research what projects Woodrow Wilson had led during the period that preceded the war, trying to find some sort of connection of how he would benefit from joining World War I. And believe it or not, but the answer was hidden right under my nose this whole time.
time in one of the most powerful institutions in the whole world. One that everyone knows about, but just takes for granted. I mean, to be honest, there's so much to the story that I can't even get into now that I might even do a separate series just to the financial fraud that has bankrupted millions of people since 1913. But for now, I'll just keep it simple. Coincidence or not, it all revolves around another big crisis that shaped the modern world as we know of it today. The Panic of 1907, the first financial crisis of the 20th century. And it was caused by the collapse of highly leveraged speculative investments propagated by easy money policies pursued by the US Treasury in the preceding years. And that ultimately led to a lot of bank runs in New York banks that were financing these risky investments. Now, if you don't know what a bank run is, it's essentially people desperately withdrawing their money from the banks, fearing that the bank would run out of money and they'd lose all of their funds they had deposited in there. The only problem is, the more people withdrawing money, the higher the risk of the bank running out of funds to cover the withdrawals. And in turn, that prompts even more people to withdraw money, leading to a self-destructive cycle that keeps draining the bank's reserves until they run out of money and default. I mean, it's like a snowball effect, and once it gets momentum, it is very hard to stop it. Now, why would that be a problem, you might ask? I mean, surely the bank has the cash everyone deposited in there to cover all of the withdrawals. <laughs> no, 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 my friend. You see, the bank doesn't just sit on the money you deposit. No, you see, it lends out almost all of it to make a profit on the interest rates. And that's how banks make money. So when a bank run happens, I mean, there's really only one way to stop it. Another institution stepping in and lending their own money to cover withdrawals. And that is exactly what happened in the panic of 1907. And one man was able to save New York banking almost single-handedly. His name? J.P. Morgan. You see, J.P. Morgan bailed out the banks by putting his own money on the line. Now, why would he do that? Why would one of the most powerful men in the world put his own money on the line to save his competitors from defaulting? Well, there's two explanations. Number one is that, you know, JP Morgan is very generous and deeply cared about his competitors to the point where he would risk his own bank to save others. How kind of him. Or option two is that he had an incentive for doing so. And my gut feeling tells me that option two is a little bit more likely. Now, why would he have an incentive for doing this? Well, here's how everything comes together. And you begin to see just how all the pieces fit together perfectly. You see, the whole panic of 1907 led to a huge loss of confidence in the US Treasury, which is the organization that was supposed to ensure that problems like that wouldn't happen. So naturally, when they failed to do this, it became the impetus for Congress to begin a complete overhaul of the system. The following year, Senator Nelson Aldrich was appointed as the chairman of the National Monetary Commission with the mission to form a commission to study the European financial system. What most people didn't know was that behind the scenes, Senator Aldrich had close ties to bankers. You see, he went on to spend almost two years in Europe writing recommendations and reports. And here's what happened. Upon his return, instead of handing out his reports straight to Congress, Aldrich decided to do something else. On the evening of November 22nd, 1910, Senator Aldrich left New Jersey on a train in complete secrecy alongside six other individuals who all dropped their names in favor of code names so no one would discover who they all were. And their destination? A private secluded island off the coast of Georgia. 
It was called Jekyll Island. And there, they stayed at a club, the Jekyll Island Club, which was co-owned by none other than J.P. Morgan, who arranged himself the entire facility just for this specific meeting. Now, later during my fact-checking research, I also found sources pointing out that the Rockefellers also co-owned this estate. And this meeting was so secretive, so concealed from government and public attention that nobody even knew was taking place. Now, who might be invited to attend such a secretive and important meeting? Now, more than a decade later, a list of the attendees of the secret meeting was actually leaked. And it was discovered that the attendees together represented about one quarter of the world's wealth at the time. They were A.P. Andrews, who was the Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department, Paul Warburg, who was actually a naturalized German representing Kuhn, Leob, and Co., Frank A. Vanderlip, who was President of the National City Bank of New York, Henry P. Davison, who was the senior partner of J.P. Morgan Company, Charles D. Norton, who was the President of the Morgan-dominated First National Bank of New York, and Benjamin Strong, representing J.P. Morgan himself. It was basically a secret meeting of the top financiers and bankers of the U.S. And the excuse for such powerful representatives and wealth to meet together? To go on a duck hunting trip on Jekyll Island, of course. Only that duck that they were hunting was your money. Because what they were planning in that secret meeting was something that would deeply benefit the big national bankers for centuries to come. And I know that this is all starting to sound maybe like a bit of a dramatic exaggeration, so don't take my word for it. Let's hear directly from the Forbes founder, Bertie Charles Forbes, who wrote firsthand about this event. Picture a party of the nation's greatest bankers stealing out of New York on a private railroad car under the cover of darkness, stealthily riding hundreds of miles south, embarking on a mysterious launch, sneaking onto an island deserted by all but a few servants, living there for a full week under such rigid secrecy that the names of not one of them was once mentioned. Least the servants learned the identity and disclosed to the world the strangest, most secret expedition in the history of American finance. I am not romancing, I am giving to the world for the first time the real story of how the famous Aldrich Currency Report, the foundation for our new currency system, was written. The utmost secrecy was enjoyed upon all. The public must not glean a hint of what was to be done. Senator Aldrich notified each one to go quietly into a private car of which the railroad had received orders to draw upon an unfrequented platform. Off the party set, New York's ubiquitous reporters had been foiled. Nelson had confided to Henry, Frank, Paul, and Piet that he was to keep them locked up at Jekyll Island, out of the rest of the world, until they had completed their plan. So you might be asking, what plan were they working on? Well, it was the current U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve. And this was one of the biggest turning points for the puppet master's control over the money in history. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But first, let me tell you why the creation of the Fed required such a secretive meeting in the first place. You see, virtually all of the founding fathers and enlightened thinkers had been diametrically opposed to central banks. Thomas Jefferson even stated, I sincerely believe that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies and that the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling the futurity on a large scale. In fact, most people don't even know this, but America had another central bank before the Fed, 
back in the 1830s when Andrew Jackson was the seventh president. And on his deathbed, President Jackson was actually asked what the greatest honor of his career had been. Without any doubt, he proudly exclaimed, killing the central bank. Unfortunately, his efforts, while noble, had never fully eradicated the problem. They simply mitigated them because the puppet masters now had the perfect opportunity to create a new central bank. They had the people's support for an overhaul on the financial system that was driven by the panic of 1907. And they had the written plan for it backed by the most powerful bankers in the country. And they had someone to sign their plan into law, Woodrow Wilson, who also coincidentally got some campaign financing from these very same bankers that facilitated his way into the Oval Office. The day was December 23rd, 1913. From that day on, bankers were the ones with complete control over the economy. Woodrow Wilson was the newly elected president and on the evening of the 23rd of December, when most congressmen had already left for Christmas holiday as well, Wilson rushed the Federal Reserve Act through an almost empty Senate. I mean, I need you to understand this. The act was approved by a vote of literally three to zero and approved the creation of, first of all, the IRS, AKA the tax man, the hallmark of modern taxation. Number two, the infamous Federal Reserve. And with his signature, the Fed now had the exclusive power to print America's money, meaning the government had given away its power to control their own economy to a private institution. Yes, you heard that right. The Federal Reserve is not federal at all. It is a private institution controlled by the most powerful bankers in America. And just so you understand, out of the attendees of that meeting in Jekyll Island, Warburg was appointed as a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and went on to serve as the second vice chairman of the Federal Reserve just two years later. Benjamin Strong Jr. served as the governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for 14 years. And Henry, Charles, and Benjamin were deeply connected to JP Morgan, which still owns 30% of the New York Fed still to this day, which by the way, also happens to be where their HQ is based. And Senator Aldrich, the very man appointed by Congress to lead the National Monetary Commission and who called for the secret meeting in the first place, well, funnily enough, he went on to become a member of the Rocker family himself through marriage. Meaning, the guy who architected the creation of the Federal Reserve was a Rockefeller. And ladies and gentlemen, that is why I always say that the government and the politicians are never the ones in charge. They are simply a mere puppet for the puppet masters. And again, I'm not the only one who came to this conclusion. You see, during my research, I came across an old and battered congressional record from the House in 1908. And they were discussing the creation of a central bank years before the bill was even signed. And here's what they said. This, sir, is a step backward in the advancement of our people and our government. It is a step toward the enthronement of a money monarchical power. I repeat, sir, this has ceased to be a matter of political differences and is neither a question of republicanism or democracy, but is a question of whether Wall Street or the people shall rule this American government. Like I said before, this isn't about petty politics. This is about something much deeper. And the discussion in the House continued. This bill enables Wall Street to turn panics off and on at will. The Secretary of the Treasury would become the hired man of Wall Street. Shall we close as a fitting climax to the billion dollar Republican Congress by crowning our masters, King Morgan and King Rockefeller, the heroes of the last panic? Or shall it be King Taft, 
Wall Street's hired man. And upon that line, the House of Representatives erupted in what was transcribed as a prolonged applause. Again, the puppet masters had been operating in the shadows for centuries now. So why was the creation of the Fed such a big turning point? You see, before the Fed, currency printing in the US was decentralized through multiple state banks that were in charge of printing money independently. And after the creation of the Fed, the bankers behind it now had managed to centralize money printing under one institution, which means they were now in complete control over the country's money supply. And just a few short years later, Woodrow Wilson launched the US into World War I, as we already know. So after all that, in whose interest was it to join the war? Well, it was the bankers behind the Fed. Now, why, you might be asking? Because here's what happens during war. The government increases their spending dramatically, having to print more money to cover such spending. However, the government can't print their own money anymore. So what it does instead is it takes up huge amounts of debt. And where do you think that money comes from? The Fed and the bankers, facilitated through a complex web of debt instruments. And then the government has to pay interest on that, which is how the bankers and the Fed make money. A lot of money. And in this graph, you can see how much debt the US has accumulated throughout the war the higher the spikes, the more money the Fed makes as interest. Even Congressman Charles Lindbergh spoke about the events of 1907 as a great scheme saying that the King bankers knew the conditions of the market and informed their close friends as to what was to come. There would be a panic in the fall of 1907 that would be advertised as the result of our bad banking and currency laws, which primed the system for overhaul in the form of a central bank. And later, Charles went on to discuss Woodrow Wilson's act. This act establishes the most gigantic trust on wealth. When the president signs this act, the invisible government by the money power will be legalized. Now, you know exactly what he meant by the invisible government by the money power. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. Even after all of this evidence, I was still not convinced about the real interest behind the Federal Reserve and if they were as nefarious as my research was making them seem to. It was only after I got my hands on a lost document from 1932 that my mind changed. You see, this document is stored in the document division of the Stanford Library and it reports the hearings of an investigation on the Federal Reserve that took place in US Congress. And the reason for such investigation? Well, you see, the chair of the House of the Banking Committee accused the Federal Reserve of artificially creating crashes and crisis to the point of even filing a petition for the impeachment of the Federal Reserve Board. What I found buried inside of this document was mind-blowing. Here's how the petition for the impeachment was introduced. Mr. Chairman, we have in this country one of the most corrupt institutions the world has ever known. I refer to the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks. This evil institution has impoverished and ruined the people of the US and has practically bankrupted our government. It was done this through the maladministration of the law by the Federal Reserve Board and through the corrupt practices of the moneyed vultures that control it. Now, some people think the Federal Reserve Banks are US government institutions. They're not government institutions. They are private credit monopolies which prey upon the people of the United States for the benefit of themselves. Listen, this is not me saying it. That was said in Congress by the chair of the House of Banking Committee. And that, my friend, 
sealed the deal for me alongside all the other evidence I had gathered throughout my research. That tells you everything you need to know about the real interest and incentives behind the Federal Reserve. Now, with those new discoveries, I circled back to our main questions to evaluate what we had uncovered so far. While looking into World War I and the Panic of 1907, we managed to gather the information needed to answer some of our most prominent questions. What is the real hidden agenda of the World Economic Forum? Why do they think that the world needs a reset and how do they plan to implement this in practice? Why did Klaus Schwab have such a fixation with crisis in his book? And most importantly, what is the connection between the WEF and the most powerful institutions that shape our world today, such as the Fed, the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, etc. At this point, we have already found out why the American government orchestrated their way into the war. And secondly, who got rich off of that war? And thirdly, how the Fed was connected to all of these efforts. So there's still a few questions that remain unanswered. And here's where I actually noticed something interesting. You see, the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset are all global initiatives with worldwide impact. So if that's the case, why does everything we've managed to uncover so far only relate to the US? How did they manage to go from controlling the US money supply to controlling the money worldwide? And here is where things take an unexpected turn. And we look at our third crisis, World War II. December 7th, 1941. You see, before we ever get to 1971, the year of the creation of the World Economic Forum, there's still one last crisis we need to revisit that happened between World War I and 1971. And you can probably guess what that was. World War II, surely the noble fight against the Nazis was just that, noble. I mean, after all, the US had absolutely no choice but to enter the war after the atrocious events of December 7th, 1941 when the Japanese Empire launched a surprise military attack at Pearl Harbor. At least, that's what I've always been told. Now, after finding out the real reason that the US joined World War I, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, was that really what happened? You see, the US already had a precedent of orchestrating their way into war, so I simply couldn't take all these facts at face value. So I went on to investigate, and what I found made me realize just how deep the rabbit hole goes. I mean, obviously learning from their own experiences during World War I, the puppet masters already knew how to create filthy amounts of wealth through war. I mean, their blueprint was simple. Get the government to spend a lot and create internal debt, and then loan money to the government from the Fed and others. Then get paid interest on those loans. The more debt the government creates, the more money the puppet masters make. Listen, we already know the drill. And you can see how effective that was when we update our chart that shows the internal debt with the data for World War II. Pretty much four times more debt than in World War I. But what's more is with all that new cash leads to the puppet master's favorite control tool, inflation. In the years after the war, inflation soared by 20%. And who reaps the benefit of prices going up? Asset owners. Who gets screwed? Everyday people. While their purchasing power was getting wrecked, the asset owners enjoyed the benefits. The Dow rallied over 500% over the next 20 years. So not only do puppet masters get rich off the war and its money printing, but they got even richer from the economic effects of printing money and inflation. But we already saw that after World War I, where the Dow also surged 500% before the Great Depression. So that's the unexciting part. That's old news. Because I found out that this tactic is just the tip of the iceberg. 
During World War II, the puppet masters got even more creative and came up with an ingenious idea. An idea that made last war's profits feel like pennies on the dollar. And the way that I got to that discovery was by asking myself this question. If the US war efforts are financed by the bankers, who finances the other side of the wars? I mean, who is financing the Nazis? Do they have an equivalent of the Fed loaning them crazy amounts of money to pay off their war debts? Turns out the answer is yes and no. You see, here's the thing. Germany didn't have a huge central bank with access to ungodly amounts of money like the US does with the Fed. So Hitler had to find other ways of financing his efforts. And here's where a guy called Fritz Thyssen comes into the picture. Thyssen helped finance Hitler's plans for over a decade. How? He owned the largest steel and coal company in Germany and personally funded Hitler's rise to power and his effort to rearm between two world wars as described in his own autobiography, I Paid Hitler. You see, after World War I, his family established a network of overseas banks and companies so their assets and money could be whisked offshore if ever threatened again. And one of the banks was in no other place than New York, the New York-based Union Banking Corporation, UBC. That was the US base for Fritz Thyssen and his Nazi companions. And in 1941, the very same year the US got into war, news started spreading all over the media that Thyssen had $3 million in New York vaults. That would be $57 million today when adjusted for inflation. Hitler's angel has $3 million in US banks, exclaimed the headline in the New York Herald Tribune on July 3rd, 1942. By then, the US had been at war with Germany for nearly eight months already. But more importantly, this article uncovered a very unexpected connection to this bank. It found out that one of the managing directors of the bank at the time was none other than President George H.W. Bush's father, Prescott Bush. This was heavily denied by the US media at the time, perhaps unsurprisingly. Yet 60 years later, some documents were released by the National Archives and Library of Congress revealing that Prescott Bush indeed served as a business partner of and U.S. banking operative for the financial architect of the Nazi war machine from 1926 until 1942. Through the Union Banking Corporation Shell, the very same bank that had partly financed Hitler's rise to power. And by the late 1930s, UBC had bought and shipped millions of dollars of gold, fuel, steel, and U.S. Treasury bonds to Germany both feeding and financing Hitler's build-up to war. And finally, in 1942, UBC's huge gold purchases raised suspicions that the bank was in fact a secret nest egg hidden in New York for Thyssen and other Nazi leaders. Some people even suspected that the bank was holding gold on behalf of Hitler himself. And the government ended up confirming Thyssen's control of Bush's UBC. And in October 1942, the bank was seized under the Trading with the Enemy Act. And by November, the Cilician American Company, another of Prescott Bush's ventures, had also been seized. He got caught red-handed. And you know what happened to him and all of his assets? Absolutely nothing. The assets were held by the government for the duration of the war, then returned afterwards. Meaning, he got caught stealing US gold to fund their biggest war enemy and make a profit on it. And in the end, he wasn't charged and got to keep all of the stolen gold. That, my friends, is the power of the puppet masters. I mean, it's almost poetic, isn't it? Now the question becomes, why would they fund their own war enemies? You see, there's two ways for a country to get rich off war. One is by winning the war and funding the victory. And then there's one other more sinister way to do it, arming both sides of the conflict. And it all goes back to our main character in this whole story, Klaus Schwab, 
who preaches that crisis brings us unique windows of opportunity. As you can see, the opportunity to grow and perpetuate power and control. So why not fund both sides of war to breed a crisis, and as a result, grow your power and control even further? Now we're going to circle all this back to Klaus Schwab, but let's answer our unanswered questions first. Remember when I asked if there was an equivalent of the Fed to finance the Nazi Germans? And the answer was yes and no. No, because as I just mentioned, the Union Banking Corporation and Thyssen partly financed Hitler's rise to power. And yes, because other parts of Hitler's rise to power was financed by another institution, which was indeed a central bank. Just like the Fed, the difference is this one is not a German central bank. It is not a transnational central bank. It is an institution that is above all of those, above the Fed, above all central banks. And just like me, when I started this investigation, you've probably never even heard of them before. But its influence is so great that the organization controls 95% of the world's wealth to this day. And the funniest thing is that I found out about it by chance. I was digging deeper into the U.S.-Nazi connection, and I stumbled upon the following quote from the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference that took place in 1944. There's an American president doing business with the Germans while our boys are fighting Germans. And at first sight, I thought he was talking about Prescott Bush. But then I remember that Prescott Bush was never president. His son and his grandson were. And as I dug deeper, I realized that he wasn't actually referring to a president of the United States, but rather a president of the secret institution, which is above the central banks that I just mentioned. So I set out to discover who this president was and what type of business he was doing with the Nazis. Digging a little deeper, or a lot deeper, as I should say, I found out that the vice president of the German central bank was also a director of this hidden in plain sight organization. Meaning, this organization and the German central bank had close ties. In fact, this organization was so intertwined with the Nazi economy that it helped keep Nazi Germany stay in business. It carried out foreign exchange deals for the German central bank. It accepted looted Nazi gold, and in one specific event, they even transferred 23.1 metric tons of gold from a Czechoslovak account to the German central bank account, all inside their biggest enemy central bank. The Bank of England, and yes, that actually happened. All through the accounts of this hidden organization, it was so useful to the Nazis that they referred to this organization as the German Central Bank Only Foreign Branch. All of that while having an American banker as the president of the organization. Their reach and connections were vital for Nazi Germany. So much so that all throughout the war. The German central bank continued paying interest on all the money loaned by this organization, and here's where things get interesting. This interest was used by the organization to pay dividends to its shareholders, and guess who was one of the biggest shareholders of this institution? The Bank of England. Meaning, the German central bank was actually funding the British war economy. It was the exact same thing the Fed was doing by funding both the U.S. And the Nazis—they were funding both sides of the war. And the Fed, well, they didn't like that at all. They wanted to be the ones funding everything because that would be a lot more profitable, wouldn't it? So they wanted to get rid of this organization, and they had a plan for doing so. Now, how did I find that out? Well, do you remember that quote from a few minutes ago? There's an American president doing business with Germans while our boys are fighting Germans. Well, turns out that that was said at the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference, more properly known as the Bretton Woods Conference. 
and the purpose of it? Approve the liquidation of this very organization at the earliest possible moment. You see, the guy that said that there was an American president doing business with the Germans was Harry Dexter White. White was an official in the US Treasury Department. He was a top advisor to the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, and was placed in charge of all Treasury Department's international matters. Now, important fact to remember here, the US Treasury is the organization closely related to the Fed. Their interests kind of go hand in hand. Morgenthau and White were the most powerful enemies of the secret organization and lobbied hard at Bretton Woods in July 1944. Now, why you may ask? Well, White had different visions for the international economy. He envisioned a greater role for the US dollar worldwide. His objective was very clear, make the US currency the global trade and finance vehicle. And the way that he proposed to do that was by having the US dollar backed by gold and other currencies pegged to the US dollar's value. This way, the puppet masters behind the Fed would finally achieve their ultimate goal, have complete control of not only the US money supply, but also the entire world's money supply, which would now be pegged to the dollar, the very same currency that they had complete control over. And so, they did. The outcome of the Brandon Woods Conference was very favorable for the puppet masters. It led to the creation of the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, and the World Bank the two institutions the puppet masters needed to assert their worldwide control. And that leads us directly back to our most important year in our timeline, 1971, where the puppet masters made their final move to assert control over the world's monetary system. The final move that was the missing piece for them to start implementing their ultimate multi-decade long plan, the Great Reset.